And so, Lord, as we approach now this time of preaching, um, we do that humbly. We do that with um, we do that with great yearning, with great hunger in our souls, because we want to hear from you. We want to hear from the God of the universe who created and spoke this world into existence. And so, Lord, we don't want to talk about things. We don't want to just be wise in a worldly way. We don't want to use human wisdom. We want to be operating on a different principle. We want you to speak. So your word is living and active, and that's our promise, sharper than a two-edged sword. So I pray that that word would pierce this morning to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow, as the word of God says, and discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. And do that for us this day. Make your son look great. In Jesus' name. I wasn't going to start this way, but I want to say something. I was just couldn't help but think about the fact that today, being Easter Sunday, welcome. If you're here, if you're visiting, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, but if uh, if you're familiar with the famous eight uh, nineteenth century uh, European philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, perhaps you've heard his name before. Uh, he is famous for uh, uttering some words in 1882. In one of his volumes of philosophy, uh, God is dead. Those are the words that he uttered in 18, uh, 1882. Recently, I saw a uh, billboard in Minneapolis that was uh, over the interstate, a major, really busy intersection. And the billboard is was one of those quotations. And at the bottom of the quotation, there was a dash indicating who said that. And the quotation said, Nietzsche is dead. Dash, God. (laughs) And the fact is, Nietzsche is dead. In fact, he died in the early 1900s, 1906, August 25th. Nietzsche is dead. But God is not dead. God got up from the grave. Jesus, the God-man, Jesus Christ, got up from the grave and mastered death to where he can say, oh, death, where is your sting? And, oh, grave, where is your victory? All day today, we will be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 4, and I want you to think about the resurrection in light of the fact that, as Justin said earlier this morning, that if it wasn't for the resurrection, what I'm going to preach now wouldn't make any sense anyway. The fact is, Jesus has raised, has been raised from the dead, and so we preach Mark chapter 4 in light of the resurrection. Well, religious belief is not usually associated with a particular body part. But there are many body parts that do express our religious ideas. So, perhaps an open mouth, we think of preaching or smiling lips, or an outstretched arm, or outstretched arms, for that matter, praying hands, perhaps. Or for those familiar with the Bible, uh, how about beautiful feet as an imagery? But I have, uh, I have this suggestion to make to us this morning. Christianity, I believe, is most intimately tied up with none of those body parts. But it is tied up most intimately with the ear. John Bunyan is best known for his allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, and many of you have probably read that. But in another famous allegory that he has written, uh, The Holy War, there is a picture of, in that uh, painting that he presents through literature, a picture of man's soul uh, represented by a town called Man's Soul. And in that town, there are five gates. Eye gate, ear gate, nose gate, mouth gate, and feel gate. Well, ear gate was defended in a story by a company of uh, 60 deaf men. And when the usurper, Prince Diabolos, attacked man's soul, he took it. Well, anyway, Prince Emmanuel was sent to retake the town of man's soul... And when he does, 
Which gate do you think he takes it through? It's through Eargate that he launches this assault and retakes the town of man's soul. Now, if you're new to Christianity, uh, you may be surprised to know that Jesus says a lot more about the ear than really any body part. Really, learning how to use our ears uh, in this life is one of the great themes of Jesus' teaching. Our ears distinguish us from other people. In this series through the Gospel of Mark, we've been considering various responses to Jesus. Uh, In chapter 1, we're told that Jesus really comes, and the message that Jesus is declaring, in a nutshell, is this. The kingdom of God has arrived. Chapter 1, 14, 15, and 16. Now, in chapters 1 and 2, Jesus goes around working all kinds of miracles of healing and exorcism, to show that Jesus is not just a political ruler, but in fact, he is a king with all authority. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come with all authority. And Jesus' statements of his authority really climax in chapter 2, when Jesus says, look, I don't only have authority to heal everybody of every disease, to heal everybody of everything, but I also have the authority to forgive sin. In other words, the kingdom that Jesus is announcing is a spiritual kingdom. It's not fundamentally a political kingdom. In chapter 3, last week, we considered the theme of insiders and outsiders in that kingdom. And we we sought to answer the question, who is in the kingdom and who is out? And we saw that the religious zeal of the Pharisees and the scribes and even apostleship or family lineage or alliances aren't good enough to get us into the kingdom of God. In in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, we saw that the Pharisees thought they were insiders, but in fact were outsiders, despite the fact that they were meticulous followers of the law of God. Then in 7 through 12, we saw the crowds, and they weren't insiders either. They totally misunderstood the essence of the kingdom and pursued Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And even Judas, who was an apostle, He himself was an outsider. He ultimately betrayed Jesus. And clearly the scribes in chapter 3 were outsiders. The scribes were because they blasphemed the Holy Spirit and rejected the Messiah to his face. And even sadly, in chapter 3, Jesus' own family at this point are on the outside as they try to arrest Jesus under the notion that he is mentally ill, that he is deranged and unstable. They're trying to save Jesus from himself. Well, anyways, all that climax to the main point of last week, which is that being religious does not get you into the kingdom of God. Apostleship or biological relation can't do that for you. Only faith in the message of the kingdom, the gospel, is adequate. And Jesus identifies people who are in the kingdom as people who are busy doing the will of God. And most foundationally, what it means to do the will of God is to believe that Jesus is is the Christ, the one who alone can forgive sins. Well, this theme continues in chapter 4, where we find ourselves this morning. And we'll see most sharply in verses 10 through 12 that this theme of insiders and outsiders continues. Um, Look there in verse 10, 10 through 12. What we see is that the secret of the kingdom of God is given to those who are on the inside, while for outsiders, scribes, Pharisees, crowds, Everything is in parables. You see that? So what is the kingdom of God? Well, up until chapter 4, there's not any real clear, specific teaching on the kingdom of God. But in chapter 4, what we have is a series of parables, of similes, of images, of metaphors, of stories, if you will, about the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is made known, it is revealed, as Jesus says, to everyone who has ears to hear. Hence the title of this message. Now that word hear is a major word throughout this chapter. In fact, it occurs 12 times in just 33 verses. It's the dominant theme of chapter 4. And you say, well, what about the kingdom of God? Surely the kingdom of God is the dominant theme. Well, yes. But without hearing... The kingdom of God 
makes no sense. So it's, in, in fact, hearing is more foundational to the kingdom of God in that in order to hear the kingdom of God or hear the message of the kingdom, uh, we, have to, we have to embrace it. We have to receive it by faith. And so I'd like us to consider this theme of hearing in chapter 4 uh, this way. I'd like to look at the responsibility of hearing, verses 3 through 9 and 13 through 20, the danger of hearing in 10 through 12, the opportunity of hearing in 21 through 25, the mystery of hearing in 26 through 29, and the extent of hearing in 30 through 32. So let's look at the responsibility of hearing. This is a major parable of Jesus. We have the parable of the sower, as it is known. But really, I think a better title, a more fitting title for this parable would be the parable of the soils. Parable of soils. If you look at verse 13, skip all the way to verse 13, you see that it says, And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Actually, what Jesus is doing here is he is saying, This parable is so foundational to understanding all the parables that we have to start here. If you don't understand this parable, you will not be able to understand all the other parables. In other words, this is a parable about parables. This is a teaching about teaching. Look there at the scene in verses 1 and 2. We see that the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. And Jesus gets into a boat. He has a boat prepared for him to separate him from the crowd. And as Jesus is in the boat, he takes the, assumes the position of a rabbi in his day, and he takes a seated position in the boat, and he begins to teach the crowd in parables. Well, what's the point of the parable? Well, certainly this parable has something to say about sowing, because it says a farmer went out to sow. But that's not the main point. Really, the main point of this parable is how the word is received. It's about the seed that is sown and how that seed is received in the soil. So that's why I think a better title for this parable is the parable of the soils. It's not about people who don't hear. and It's not about some people who don't hear and some people who do. No, this is about churchgoers. The distinction is in how people hear. You see, this isn't so much about hearing and not hearing. Let's read verse 4 together. Look at verse 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. So what we have is we have basically a guy, and the picture here is of a man with a sort of a leather strap uh, on his waist, and he has seed. And the man is walking through a field, and, uh, and he is sort of rhythmically casting seed uh, into, the, into the field. And this seed is falling in various places. And we come across the first place the seed falls. And what is it? It's the path. The seed falls on the path. See, the path is a place that is well-worn. Lots of people are walking. And in these fields, there would be paths of inter- that would intersect that these men would be walking as they s- sowed the seed. So some of that seed, no doubt, would fall on that path. path is hard. People walk on it. So when the seed falls... There's no way for the seed to really get under the soil and take root. So what happens is the seed just basically sits on the top, and when the seed sits on top of the ground, it essentially becomes bird food. That's what Jesus is saying. The seed falls, it lands on the ground, and then the birds come and they devour the seed that is thrown there. Well, I think the best commentary that I've read on this passage is Jesus' commentary. And that starts in verse 13. And, and actually, actually, verse 15, what does Jesus say that this means? Look at verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. In the NIV, I like the translation, the NIV says, as soon as they hear it. As soon as they hear it, he comes and he takes it away. Now, let, can we just be sympathetic with these people for a minute? I think what happens is we, we talk about often when we hear the parable of the sower, we talk about this hearer. Oh, well, I mean, surely there's nobody like that here, right? This is the worst kind of hearing. This is the, the person who, when the word of God is sown, it, it falls and immediately is plucked away. But surely we want to say, well, we're not like that. We, we at least hear it. There at least is a root 
that goes under the ground, at least something happens. At least maybe a plant comes up. Can we be sympathetic with these people for a minute? These are tough-minded skeptics. These are people who question when they hear things. These are skeptics. These are people who, when the word comes, it's hard. The service is hard. The service of the heart is hard. You can't get through that. These are hard-hearted people. They seem to be unmoved. They have kind of a a gospel deafness about them. So when the gospel is spoken, it's almost like it lands on deaf ears. They cannot hear. You ever been driving in your car and you want to get over motion? And so you're motioning, you you put your indicator on, and you're motioning, you're trying to get over. And the person that's beside you that you're trying to get over is just oblivious to the fact that you're wanting to get over. They just keep driving straight ahead, keep driving, not looking at you. I mean, this is kind of what's going on here. Totally unmoved, unresponsive, not hearing at all. Truth never gets deeper than words. And so men are unresponsive, and the word is lost. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, let me say this to you. You cannot be a Christian by merely coming to church or living in a religious community or around Christians. If you're not producing fruit, the reason why you're not producing fruit is because you're not a Christian. Christianity is not something that is cultural. Not finally, not at the end of the day. We live in the South, and this is referred to as the Bible Belt. But true Christianity is something that goes into the soil, and it reaps fruit. So the fact that you grew up in a Christian family really does nothing for you. I want to say something to our youth uh, who are here at this church. Is your heart hardened? Is this you? Is this you? The seed falls on your ground and you are so hardened by the work. You are tired of hearing messages about Jesus. I mean, week in and week out, sermons, preaching about Jesus, on and on and on it goes. And and, and so Satan comes and immediately he takes away the word. He takes away the word. You have a hard heart. And for us as a family, as a church body, every Sunday... We should give ourselves this test. What kind of hearers are we? What about today? What about in this message? What kind of a hearer are you of the Word? Are you a hearer right now who is not only listening, but who is wanting to have the climate of being a good soil hearer, who listens and responds to the Word every Sunday? This is a test for us. How do you respond? And so Jesus says, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes it away. These people are hard hearers. Well, then we have the rocky ground. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. The rocky ground. It says, Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, and since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Now, this is easy enough to understand. What's happening here, essentially, is that there is a rocky soil here, and under the soil, there's a thin layer of bedrock. And, and so when the sun shines, the seed falls, and it sort of mixes in with this rocky soil. And when the sun shines down, uh, the rock warms up underneath the soil. So it creates kind of a greenhouse effect. You have the soil on top. You have the warm rock underneath, and you have the seed in the middle. And so what happens is immediately that crop begins to come up because it's like a greenhouse effect. It sprouts very quickly, and it comes up the quickest. And so it seems to be the most promising. It comes up. You look at it. You say, wow. I mean, this is coming out Look for all the rest of them. This is a very healthy plant. Look how quickly it has sprouted. But what happens is when the sun begins to beat down, The plant needs to take a deeper root into the ground, but the rock prevents that from happening. And since the rock prevents that from happening, uh, the, the plants cannot get water, and these plants are quickly green, but quickly withered. What did Jesus say this means? Look at verse 16. And these are the ones 
sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, immediately they fall away. That's Jesus' commentary in verse 16. These are people who are eager to hear. Remember chapter 3, the lakeshore people who are eager, the crowds coming out to hear Jesus, and they want to hear him. They're eager to listen to his message. Jesus speaks to them. They are lakeshore people. But the word is rejected as easily as it is received. Eager listening. And Jesus gives them a warning. You wouldn't think that Jesus would warn these kind of people because they seem to be most interested in his, in his speeches, in his talks, in his teaching. But Jesus stops and he says, I want to warn you. If you're an eager listener of the word of God, I want to warn you. That's kind of paradigm shifting. Why would Jesus be warning people who are eager to listen to the word? It's because it's superficial hearing and it has no roots. These are the people who say, good sermon, pastor. Every Sunday. And they're eager to listen. And maybe they even take notes. And they tell you how they're excited to hear you the next time. See, this is a more subtle form of gospel deafness. Quick starts, no finish. Alexander McLaren, a a brilliant English Bible expositor, says of such people, listen to this quote. I, I find this beautifully well said. He says, these people are well meaning perfectly sincere, warmly affected, and completely unreliable. Lightly come is lightly go. Two things are marked by our Lord as suspicious in such easily won discipleship, its suddenness and its joyfulness. Feelings which are so easily stirred are superficial. A puff of wind set a shallow pond in wavelets. Quick maturity means brief life and swift decay. Non-Christian, I'm sorry that you've seen a lot of superficial Christianity. I know to you it seems like the church is full of hypocrites. But did you ever wonder that maybe what you think to be hypocrisy is not true Christianity at all? Maybe what you've seen is not the church. Maybe what you've seen is false Christianity. And I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for the picture that we have presented to you, this quick start and no finish. It's no wonder you think that the church is full of hypocrites. My Christian friend, have you counted the cost? What would would become of you if tomorrow you were heavily persecuted for your faith? I fear that some of us may be fair-weathered Christians. Those who do well in church Sunday by Sunday, but... What if serious, intense persecution came? Would you be here today and gone tomorrow? That's a serious question for us to ask ourselves. And as a church, are we a suffering church? Are we willing to embrace persecution? Are we willing to stand up when it gets tough? I pray that God would help us and give us ears to hear. So Jesus says, and these are the ones that are sown on rocky ground. Ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So if the first kind of hearing was hardened hearing, this kind of hearing is superficial hearing. Then Jesus describes the thorns in verse 7. Look at verse 7, the thorns. Jesus says, other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. Now, some of these seeds, no doubt, as the, as the sower was casting his seed, also fell among the hedge. The hedge is where the thorns and the weeds were. So what happens there is that the seed falls in, and the problem is not the soil so much as the surroundings, the weeds and the thorns. What does Jesus say about this? Look at verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world 
and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is Jesus' commentary in verse 18. And here, uh, the word, these are people who are hearing the word. They are involved. They're involved in church. They hear it. They even take it a step further. They get involved. Notice that this seed actually takes root. It goes down. Not only does it spring up, but it, it, it takes presumably a deeper root even than the last seed. See, with all these seeds, they're progressing. The hearing is, is actually getting closer to true hearing. So with a hard ground, you're at the farthest away, and then you move this way. So when you get to the thorny ground, it's taken root. The problem is not the root. The problem is the surroundings. So what happens here? What is, what is Jesus saying here? What he's saying is that other concerns are just as important as the gospel. The marketplace, the government, politics, the academy, the arts, political agenda, family life, comfort. These things begin to sort of take precedence. They're at least equal concerns, and at some point they end up taking precedence. Look, you're involved in life. You're involved in the affairs of life. And yet, and yet, this involvement, this involvement seems to be the kind of involvement that ends up choking you out. See, this is the most subtle kind of gospel deafness. See, there's a kind of worldly mindness, mindedness that survives. You profess faith in Christ, and you come out of a worldly background. And so for a while, for a few months, that worldliness really seems to subside. But because the seed has been sown among the thorns, after a year, two, that worldliness begins to creep back in. Subtly and slowly. Quiet times go out the, out the door. Fellowship stops happening. Church attendance starts getting really, really lazy and sporadic. And pretty soon, it's gone. The world has crept in. And finally and fatally, this worldly mindset will reassert itself because such people are, in fact, more concerned about this age than the age to come. Christian, what does this mean for you? Is this you? Have you made this profession? Have you made a profession and yet you see yourself sliding away? Before you know it, all of these things that you were interested in, that you seem to be so excited about, so hungry about, are fading away. This is the thorny ground hearer. Well, this kind of hearing is not hard hearing. It's careless hearing. Not superficial, it's careless hearing. Then you have Jesus describing the good soil. Look at verse 8, the good soil. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, this is easy enough to understand, of course. This is good soil. The roots go down deep. They're not choked out. It's pure soil. And Jesus says very clearly what this means. Look at verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, is the key word, and it bears fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. These are people who, when they hear the Word, they act on the Word. They do something about it. They don't just talk about it. They don't just think about it. They actually act on it. This is true conversion. Jesus says a tree is known by its fruit. That means if you're sitting here this morning and, and, and you say, well, look, I grew up in a Christian family. I'm a Christian. I've gone to church my whole life. Look, friend, that's not the question. The question is, are you bearing fruit? Are you a fruit-bearing person? Is it evident? Do other people see that? What kind of tree are you? Have you experienced true conversion? This is hearing with perseverance. This is heart hearing with obedience. This is head, heart, and resolve. This is absolute commitment. This type of hearing is, is wildly receptive. It is totally... Uh, uh, given over to obeying and doing and performing and living what it says. What kind of climate do you think produces such soil? I think that Christians, for us, we need to think about the fact that humility 
and ongoing repentance produce a climate of good soil. The fruit of the Spirit, where the fruit of the Spirit can grow. We And for, H, for our family, just want to say that there are we are fruit-bearing people, but some of us are 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Don't compare yourselves with others. That is a deadly exercise. So these are the summary of the soils. There's basically different hearing alternatives. Either you're a fruitful hearer at the end of the day, though, or an unfruitful hearer. And that's what we've seen in Mark 3, is that the crowds and the scribes and Jesus' family at this point are all unfruitful hearers. So the point of the parable really is this, is that hearing is not passive. Hearing is a very active thing. Passive hearing is deadly. It produces deadness. It's unfruitful hearing. So the question is, either we will respond or we won't. So what soil are you? What hearing alternative here best represents you? Do you have ears to hear? So hearing is a great responsibility, but it's also dangerous. Look at verses 10 through 12. This is a very interesting section. Let's read this together, 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. See, these verses are some of the most difficult in the New Testament. A very troubling idea is here presented. Why does it sound like God doesn't want some people to be forgiven? Did you see that last verse? Lest they should turn and be forgiven. The first thing I thought of when I saw this was Jonah. You remember Jonah when he's going around and God tells him go and share with the, with the people of Nineveh this message. And Jonah doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to see them repent and turn. And then I look at this and I say, well, lest they turn and be forgiven? And I'm, I'm just thinking of why This is troubling. Why does God say this? Well, I can't answer all the questions in 10 through 12. These are some of the most difficult verses in Scripture, but from these verses, I can say with confidence this, that hearing God's Word is dangerous. It's dangerous. Here's the danger. Because you can hear unto salvation, or you can hear unto judgment. Look look what's going on here. Jesus is alone, it says. And when he was alone, verse 10, when he's alone, who is he with? With those around him and the twelve. So when he was alone, those around him with the twelve. So presumably this is a smaller group. So you have the crowd, the large group of mass followers of Jesus. Then Jesus gets alone, and presumably a smaller group comes around him with his disciples. Now he's with this group. And with this group, he says that to you the secret of the kingdom has been given. But to those who are outside, everything is in parables. What's the purpose of this? Insiders and outsiders, this secret of the kingdom, everything being displayed to the insiders, but to the outsiders, nothing, all being in parables. Well, he then quotes Isaiah 6, 9. And this is a quotation to you who's been uh, of this, this quotation here in Isaiah 6, 9. He says, uh, that they may indeed see, but not perceive. That they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. See, the, the point here is this, is that judgment is tasked upon all those who do not believe. Those who reject Him. See, the problem here is actually a rejection of the Messiah. So that it's 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 not so much hearing but it's the fact that they are not hearing unto fruit. They're not fruitfully hearing. They're not producing. That's the problem. The real hearing that Jesus is after, you see, is the hearing when the Word of God comes, that they hear, and when the Word of God comes, they act upon it. But the outsiders here, the crowds, the the Pharisees, the scribes, are rejecting Jesus. And so these verses are meant as a judgment so that he speaks in parables or in language that they cannot understand. Which is why it says in verse 13, do you not understand all this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And Jesus goes on to say in verses 33 and 34 that he spoke privately to his own disciples and he explained everything to them. He wants to give them clarity about what these parables mean. Now let me speak into your life for a moment here. You come on, Sunday by, on a Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday basis and you hear the Word of God preached. 
And so this is why hearing is dangerous, is that you come away from that exposure to the truth either a little closer to God or a little further away every time. You don't stay the same. Either you're going to be more softened toward God or you're going to be more hardened toward God. But you're never just the same. And if you think that you can hold the gospel at arm's length, that very posture reveals that you are already hardened. The same truth, enlivening someone else, is hardening you. It enlivens one and it hardens another. But there's hope here. The kingdom is being revealed to all those who have ears to hear. And so we hearken back to this parable of soils. It's not just a select group who get to hear the secrets of the kingdom. No, it's all those who will believe and receive the message who have ears to hear. It's those who will ask, who will inquire. It's the disciples going to Jesus and saying, Teacher, tell us what this parable means. We want to know more. Are you hungry this morning? Is that your posture to Jesus Christ? Are you one who wants to stay at arm's length from the gospel and you're hardened? Or are you one who says, Teach me, Master. I want to learn more about this kingdom. So it's dangerous. It casts judgment on some. See, see, the Word of God is a filter. It divides. It separates like wheat and chaff. In fact, it's so dangerous that you could almost say that if you are listening consistently to the Word of God and you are not responding to that message, you are heaping judgment upon yourself. It would be better for you to stay at home and watch TV. In some senses. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying, if you come and you you receive the Word and you do nothing about that, it's just producing hardening effect on you. You're heaping judgment upon yourself. So, friends, beware of, of the danger of hearing God's Word and not responding to it. And here's why. Because of what Jesus taught about the opportunity of hearing in verses 21 through 25. The opportunity of hearing. Jesus goes on to say, and he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Well, do you do do this? Do you light a lamp, like a lantern in this case, and, and then go and hide it? See, this is a rhetorical question in verse 21. It's expecting a negative answer. No, you don't do that, because that would be a silly thing to do with a lamp, to light it and then go hide it. What a foolish thing to do to waste a lamp, to go light it and then hide it. Now, it's interesting that the word brought here in verse 21 is actually uh, the word come in Greek. So actually, we don't talk that way in English. That's why it's not said that way. But really, what, what's saying here is this. Is a lamp coming? Is a lamp coming? Now, why do I say it that way? Because the kingdom is the theme here. That, the fact is the kingdom is coming. So what Jesus is talking about with a lamp is this. He is saying the kingdom has come. Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12. He is the lamp. Jesus is the lamp. Now, you have to understand something. When Matthew uses this passage, he has a different purpose in mind. Matthew is talking about us being the light of the world. The lamp. Us. So... What Mark is doing is he's looking at that same diamond and he's turning the facet and he's saying really fundamentally what this means is the light has come. That is, the kingdom has come and and Jesus himself is the lamp. So Mark is using this differently than Matthew. See, evangelism is not the primary idea here. That's Matthew. That's a secondary idea in Mark. The primary idea here is that the kingdom has come. What was once concealed is now meant to be revealed. And so God's word comes to us. God speaks to us. Isn't it awesome that we have a communicating God? A God who communicates to us. He speaks to us truth about himself and us. He tells us who we are. He tells us who he is. He tells us how to live. He tells us the truth. We have a God who communicates with us. And the ultimate form of communication is the fact that he sent his son, the word, who came and dwelt among us. And he was the divine communication who spoke to us. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. 
The lamp has come. The kingdom has come. The lamp is lit. Jesus is reigning. Jesus goes on to say, in case this ear hearing thing is not strong enough already, pay attention to what you hear. Verse 24, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, not even what he has will be taken, even what he has will be taken away. What is this? Be careful how you hear. Because bad hearing leads to death. And good hearing leads to spiritual maturity. Look, it's like a greedy man, the anxious, hungry, greedy man who is starving and he's grasping for bread. You have to be greedy with the word of God. You have to be like a starved man who is reaching after the bread of life of Jesus Christ, of the Word of God. Because those who are receptive will get more. Those who hear will get more. But those who reject that message, even what they have will be taken away from them. You see, there's a mixture here, mingling of of opportunity and judgment. Jesus has come. The lamp is lit. So pay attention. You know what? Because the opportunity won't always be here. It won't. It won't. That's why there's an urgency of what happens here every Sunday. Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. There's an urgency. Opportunity won't always be here. And one day I hope that you will stand before the king and you will hear, well done. Actually, I hope what you'll hear is, well heard. Good ears. And so to those who have ears to hear, Jesus gives more revelation about the kingdom of God. See, this kingdom is building. He starts with a parable of the soils. And he says, the whole point here is what kind of ears do you have? Then he moves into the lamp, into the measure, and he says, the kingdom has come. If you have ears to hear, the kingdom has come. The lamp has been lit. You see what he's doing here? And if you're receiving that message, more will be given to you. If you're not receiving that message, even what you've received will be taken away from you. And then he says, but since you're hearing the message, let me tell you more about the kingdom of God. More will be given to you about the kingdom of God. Verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, (coughs) then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What in the world is Jesus talking about? This is the mystery of hearing. This is the mystery of hearing. See, look, notice this. Verse 26, the kingdom is a man, he scatters the seed. Then he sleeps. He sleeps and he rises day. But what happens? The seed sprouts and grows. And the word that's used there is automata. Automata, which is where we get automatically. The seed sprouts on its own, by itself. So the point here is that the man's not really doing anything. He simply throws the seed out. What happens, though, is Jesus seems to be stressing the fact that while the seed is busy, the man is not. The man is not. The seed is busy. The key phrase is in verse 27. He knows not how. Automata. He knows not how it is growing in the sense of it's not ultimately dependent on man to grow. So Jesus is saying, what's the kingdom like? He's saying, look, the kingdom is like a man who scatters seed and then he sleeps. But then it sprouts up and it grows and he knows not how. What's the point here? The point here is the emphasis is on the process of growth, the wonder of growth. And the sharp focus is on the fact that God is the one building his kingdom. God is the one growing his kingdom. We sow. So there's a seed time and there's a harvest. We are sowing. We are in a sowing time. And we trust God for the increase. But you know what? The full harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. And this is is really an allusion to the final judgment. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. See, both the sickle and the harvest are mentioned. And each of these terms are allusions to the final judgment. Actually, I think it's an allusion to Joel 3.13, where it says, Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. When Jesus speaks of the harvest and mentions the sickle as the harvesting tool, there can be no doubt that he's speaking of the final judgment at the end of the age. 
that day when he will return to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. So there's a seed time and there's a harvest. And the harvest is coming. So what does that mean for you? It means be ready. It means be ready. The lamp has been lit. It means you need to have good soil. You need to be a person who hears the Word of God. And if you're a hearer of the Word of God and you receive that and you act upon it, God will give you more. And you receive more, so have ears to hear. Be ready because harvest is coming. Christian, take comfort in this fact. The kingdom is not dependent on you. Doesn't this free us in evangelism? Oh, how this frees us. <clears throat> no, we do our part, yes. We do our part in evangelism. But the work of the heart and the changes that are affected in man's life is a result of the growth of God. Think about unconverted children and spouses here. The hope that you have for your children who are not Christians is this. God grows his kingdom. And this leads quite naturally to the last parable of the mustard seed and the climax of this text. Look at verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare then the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. Then he says, and it puts out its large branches branches, so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. <clears throat> this is the extent of hearing. The extent of hearing. Verses 30 through 32. Notice that this parable does, does not speak about the process of growth. The last one talks about this process of growing. That's not what this is talking about. In this parable, the contrast is between what starts out as something very small and insignificant and yet ends up producing a very large shrub. The kingdom is not like the mustard seed, small and unassuming. No, the kingdom is like what happens to the mustard seed. What appears insignificant at the beginning grows beyond all expectation. See, given the size of this original mustard seed, this tiny seed, and it, it, it grows, and it becomes so massive that even the birds perch on it, which is an allusion to Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Ezekiel's cedar tree of this great tree in the center of the earth when all the nations come and they make their nest in this tree. All the nations of the, of the world will come, and they will bow down before Jesus Christ. Every, every person will bow down one day before Jesus Christ. But the point here is that the birds who nest ultimately will be the the children of the kingdom who will come from all places of the world, from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. So what's the point of the mustard seed? The point here is that the kingdom has arrived, and even though it looks small and insignificant because it comes out of the backwater of Capernaum, The fact is, one day the kingdom and its glory will surpass even the mightiest kingdoms of the earth. And all this from the smallest of the seeds. The largest coming from the smallest. Think about this imagery. The largest coming from the smallest. Now, what what was Jesus trying to do with this? The point is not simply that the kingdom of God will be huge. Okay, everyone in Jesus' day knew that. They didn't need to be told that. What was new to them, though, is this. The fact that the kingdom of God could appear to be insignificant. That's news. The fact that it could appear to be insignificant and go from small to massive. And Jesus taught that this great kingdom of God had begun. In this small movement of Jesus and his disciples. The point of the parable seems to be that the grand thing of the last day is already present in Jesus and the disciples. The same insignificant thing. Jesus and his band of disciples would grow into this massive thing. And herein lies the beauty of the parable. It appears as an insignificant movement. Composed of a wandering rabbi who's walking around and all he's doing is sowing seed. So insignificant. And look at that band who's with him. Disciples, largely uneducated, unattractive people, unliked. I mean, hardly, this is hardly something to build an empire with. 
some guy roaming around in the desert throwing seed. Group of unlike disciples. There's no kingdom going to come out of this, surely. I mean, I mean, no, no. I mean, the academy, the marketplace, politics, something other than this. Something like Washington, D.C. In really influential people. People that really make a difference in the world. Not people sowing seed. Oh, my friend, but you've misunderstood. No, we find Jesus simply sowing seed. And in this activity, there is an inbreaking of the kingdom. And it appears to be very small and insignificant. And it continues through Jesus and his disciples to the Jews and the Gentiles. And what appears to be seemingly insignificant and an irrelevant band of itinerant preachers walking around and talking about the kingdom of God will reach someday its global impact. Friends, it already has. The kingdom of God has already spread to all the world. There's not a place in the world that is unaffected by the gospel. What is Jesus doing here? And I close with this. Jesus is teaching his disciples to look into the future and then come back into the present. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look into the future and reinterpret your present in light of what's going to happen someday. In light of the hope that we have in Christ and the fact that you will be finally forgiven of all your sins and that you will be with him forever, I want you to look at this great mustard tree, this tree that comes from the smallest and most insignificant of things. And I want you to see that what's going to happen in the future should affect how you live today. You are living in the middle of a massive kingdom that is coming. You are part of something way bigger than Heritage Baptist Church. You are part of something way more significant than your small circle of friends who are Christians. You are part of a great kingdom. Friends, appearances are deceiving. Objects are not always as they appear. And I'll close with this amazing quote from J.L. Reynolds, who captures this masterfully. Listen to these words. When Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king. He pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns and a reed and a purple robe and nailing him to a cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power. And that cross, the throne of dominion, which shall never end. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen.